to the Fitness First podcast. I have a special guest today, Josh New. I take a lot of stuff from you, man. I'm don't I'm not, I'm not afraid to say it. You're a really smart guy. You're an awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. You're an awesome fitness and nutrition coach, and you got a cool background. So I'm gonna let you kind of take it from here and and tell us, you know, well, a little bit about your history and how you got into it. Yeah. Um, man, if we really want to go all the way back, I originally started this back when I was in high school in terms of just working out and that kind of thing, because I wanted to be better at, at athletics. But, um, I went on to play football at the university of Oklahoma. And, um, during that time I knew I wanted to do something training wise and just helping other people kind of, uh, with what I struggled with, which was figuring out the workout side of things. Um, and as I started to dive into it, I quickly realized that the nutrition was debatably the bigger piece for really everything and for everyone that I was working with as a personal trainer. So I um, went on to get a master's in nutrition at the University of Oklahoma. And uh, that was at the Health Sciences Center. So that one's a little bit further north up in Oklahoma City. And um, after I finished up with that, I did my dietetic internship um, for a lot of people who don't realize to become a dietitian, at least in the US and Australia and the UK, I believe, you have to have a dietetic internship. So it's not just a nutrition degree. You also have to go on to do clinical work and a um, few other rotations and then pass a standardized exam, uh, which I did through the University of Houston. And then after I passed all of that, I uh, started working as a personal trainer down in Houston um, for a large scale gym at the time. And then after that, moved out to the Bay Area in California, um, San Jose, and worked for I uh, worked for a small college out there, ran all of the nutrition, and then um, for all sports, for all athletes. And uh, right after that, I started working for the MLS, so the San Jose Earthquakes, uh, did nutrition for them for a couple of years, all the way until right when the pandemic hit, actually. Um, and then they shifted, went out to Miami. I stayed there <laughs> and uh, got a job with the 49ers uh, not long after that. And I had started running my own just kind of online uh, business around the same time. So it had been you know, right in the height of the pandemic during COVID and um, worked for the, the 49ers for a year. It was a year-long contract, um, did nutrition for them all the way through the, the COVID season. We actually lived in Gilbert, Arizona for the last five weeks of the season because we got kicked out of California. And then um, after that, I just uh, started doing everything full online um, from then on. So I haven't really honestly haven't looked back. I've always worked one-on-one with people for weight loss and um, muscle building is usually kind of like a, a secondary goal for most people. And athletics was just always something that I enjoyed doing. Um, so really it's been a little over, oh man, it's going to kind of date me a little bit. Um, it's, I've been a, a trainer for about 12 years now and a dietitian for going on eight years, a little over eight years at this point, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, yeah, you've been in yeah. a while, man. Uh, longer than I realized. <laughs> you start to look back on it and realize. Well, especially considering the, the fitness life cycle is like two years, right? Like most people who, who are in the fitness space, uh, like are in and out. Uh, I think, I think the average is two years or maybe a little shorter. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't heard the two year part. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because you know, a lot of, a lot of people that I've worked with over the years typically don't have backgrounds in exercise science or anything just really exercise training related. They usually come from just different backgrounds. Like they enjoyed working out. And so they decided yep. to become a personal trainer and did that. And, you know, maybe that lasts for a couple of years and they go into real estate or something like that afterwards. So that does to seem to be, thing. that does seem to be what everybody goes into. They, they do like some sort of fitness and nutrition business and then they go right to real estate. I don't know if it's like the sales aspect of it that like makes them feel like the carryovers there, but 
the industries could not be more different. I mean, as far as like what you're selling, I mean, yes, like you're still selling something, but I mean, there are so many different laws and regulations that go into real estate that like that have no bearing on fitness whatsoever. Yeah, no, nothing at all. It's completely unrelated, but I don't know how many trainers I've seen go into real estate. Yeah, I don't. I think it's probably just a combination of good commission rates and uh, like just networking. You start to know some people in your area and just take it from there would be my guess. I really don't know. Yeah, I I heard somebody say once on a podcast that like the one of the best careers you can start out with is personal training because you meet so many people and so you learn like you learn people skills too. Like it's an hour, an hour's a long fucking time to not talk to somebody, you know, like. If you have an hour long training yeah. session with somebody, you've got to talk to them for a while. You know, you got to start conversations. Eventually, you just get kind of deep on stuff just because, like, they're dealing with something at home, and then just kind of gets brought up in the session. Yeah, and you you become their their cheaper version of a therapist. That's right, <laughs> and you get to know them very well. Yeah, yeah. Hour long hour definitely is a long time. So um, I think that's probably half what people come in for when it comes to in person personal training is to get a cheaper therapy session. So <laughs> no, I agree. So here, so here's a question for you, man. So I know, like we talked about, like, you know, two years, the life cycle of a personal trainer, of a nutrition coach, what do you think pushes people out of it so quickly? Ooh, that's a good question. I think, man, I would say that it's probably just the fact that you have a turnover with a client base and it's hard to keep a client base. Um, mm-hmm. if you're really good, it probably comes more naturally. Or if you happen to be really good at sales, it probably comes more naturally too. Like it's, you know, the sales and service side of things. Like if you're really good at either or, or potentially even both, I think you'll probably stick with it a lot longer. Um, or if you're just super passionate about it, like I think you could stick with it for a lot longer. I've always been super passionate. So regardless of highs and lows, I'm going to stick with it. But for people who aren't really passionate about it or, you know, who aren't as good as the service side because they don't have the background in it or they're not naturally good at sales or something like that. I, I think it's easier just to find something else. And it's like, let's jump on to the next thing and see yep. how the next thing works out. And you know, whether it does or not, I don't know. Like I, I don't know what the field, I don't know what field pe- real estate agents go into once they're, they're not good at that. So uh, I think it's, I, I think it's either mortgage broking or insurance. I think that's usually the next couple, the oh, next so couple down the line. The next, yeah. Maybe that's what it is too. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're, you know, they don't find themselves very good at that, that it turns into the same thing. So um, I, I, I really lean on just the fact that it's probably a lot of people aren't passionate about it and don't have a good mm-hmm. understanding of it would be my guess. Well, yeah. And I think understanding is a good point you just brought up because I think me and you have a pretty similar ideology when it comes to eating and, and by no means am I a dietitian. So I like you, you have way more experience in that regard than I do. But, uh, you know, I try to, I'm, I am a certified nutrition coach and I, I try mm-hmm. to listen to people like you and I try to uh, attend like seminars from guys like Lane Norton, uh, other dietitians oh, yeah. so that I can be as knowledgeable as I can on the topic. And where do you think all of this stigma has come from, from, food groups, right? Like you're a huge proprietor of, of flexible eating and that, you know, we, oh, we yeah. got to focusing in on those calories in calories out before anything else. And wh- wh- where do you think the confusion of this is coming from? Cause nowadays I feel like eating is so confusing for people. <laughs> yeah. It's very confusing. The two, the two biggest reasons. And actually if I had to narrow it down to one reason, it really just comes down to money. Um, mm. it, it just comes down to people making money off of what they're talking about. Right. And it's like, you know, if you think about any specific diet that's out there, there's always some quote unquote guru of the diet. And if you look at what they're doing, they're always selling something with it. It's always books or 
um, specific coaching programs or whatever. And a lot of them like to cherry pick research to just support their ideology and, you know, just kind of discredit all the rest uh, because it, it helps support their own narrative. It helps them sell more of whatever it is that they're selling. And I, I mean, I can think of, you know, numerous examples of that from carnivore to, you know, keto. If you remember the, the Atkins diet, which is really just the, you know, <laughs> the old keto diet before yeah, keto became yeah. keto, uh, it's pretty much the same exact thing, you know, and every, like the blood type diet, eating for your blood type, yep. like there's, I mean, probably 20, 30 diets out there at this point, but there's always people who specifically are trying to make money off of it. I think that's, I think that's debatably the biggest reason. The second reason is because, you know, going back to like what we just talked about, a lot of people hop into the training and nutrition industry, the fitness industry, and they don't really have a good understanding of things. And because they don't have a good understanding, they got into it because they saw great results themselves. Yep. And whatever it is that they were doing for themselves is what they end up doing for everyone else. And so if they, you know, happen to see great success with the keto diet, well, guess what? Like they're going to recommend the keto diet for every person they come in contact with. Yep. And, you know, maybe for some people that works well, but for a lot of people, it doesn't. Um, so I, I really think it comes down to both of those things, but it still comes back down to, you know, are they going to be able to make money off of it? And, um, you know, sustain a lifestyle off of it. Yeah. And, and I see that a lot. And I mean, we can talk about it in real estate or the mortgage industry or whatever too. Like someone's selling a secret, you know, like it's this secret yeah. thing that like, that, that you don't know about and that's what they're selling to you. And they sell it to you at crazy prices because like, once you know about it, you know, then, then you're going to run with that secret and hit this stride of progress. So like, like you see it all the time on like YouTube ads. People are like, I'm selling my rental property blueprint for a passive million yeah. dollars a month. And you're like, well, <laughs> yeah, no, no revenue's passive, right? Like, like rental properties. Right. You're doing some I, kind of work. Yeah, something in it. And uh, I feel like that is that the secret, like that, that term, the hack of the secret. Hack is a big one too in nutrition, the, the fat loss hacks. And it, and it almost sucks to the yeah. point where like, I know, like, I feel like I need to call stuff that. I need to call it a hack or like a, or like 100%. a secret, to, but, but it's for marketing because people love it, but there, but there's no secret or yep. hack. Like it's the same shit that we've been doing for decades right. that yeah. works. Yeah. Yeah. It's the exact same. You know, honestly, I, I, if I could add on to those first two, then I guess I'd say that there's probably a third one. Cause you kind of bring up a good point in that like people like to think in black and white. They don't like to mm -hmm. weigh a lot of decisions and figure stuff out on a daily basis. It's like, I'd rather just make a decision and stick with that. So I, it's a lot easier to do something like keto from a mental perspective, initially at least, because you can say, well, I can't have that and I can have this. Rather than if you think about it from a flexible dieting side of things, it's like, well, I can have some of this, but it's in this situation. Or I can have some of this, but it's in this situation. It, it doesn't sound as sexy for one. And for two, it's just, it takes much more mental energy. So it's a lot easier just to cut out this and just do that and yep. think that, okay, perfect. That's going to be the way to go. So you know, I think that's probably actually a third point that you could, you could tack onto that. No. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and a lot of times too, because of that, I, I, I forgot who coined the phrase, but it, it's decision fatigue, I think is what it's called. Like that's yeah. the, yeah, there's a the, lot of research on that. And I, I think ultimately too, it's you end up getting the people that stick to the flexible dieting once they've gone through all that other stuff where they're like, well, I don't want to make decisions on this. I don't want to make decisions on this. And then really like when you get the person that buys in, when they are your next success story as a client, they've done keto, they've done the, mm -hmm. the whole 30, which like obviously like that was never supposed to be a sustainable diet anyways. And 
and, and they do like a like Ozempic's really big right now. And it's not that I think yep. Ozempic is like the devil or anything like that. It's just the people aren't changing much in their lifestyle. They're just relying on it to to change it for them. So then yeah. you now have job. yeah. So now like you have to take it forever. And if you stop, you're just doing the same thing. So the the effects don't last. And so that's when I think me and you get clients that that are the success stories is like they've gone through this stuff because they don't want to experience that decision fatigue. Yeah. I mean, it's, I would say, yeah, probably so. I think some of the best clients I've ever had have gone through the whole process before, because I think they are trying to figure out what works best for them and they don't want to have to think about it, which is fine initially. But the problem is, is they, they end up jumping from diet to diet because it doesn't stick around forever and they run into issues and they run into problems. They don't know how to fix those problems. And eventually they realize, well, I have to think about this at some point in order to learn how to do this if they want to do it the right way and you know be able to keep up with it long term. So it's probably just you know some avoidance to some degree. And then once they realize that avoiding it doesn't work and they're gonna to have to put forth the effort to actually learn how to do it, you know, typically they're they're much more bought in because they realize that everything else doesn't work on top of that. And you know, even thinking about Ozempic too, like, does it work? Oh, absolutely. Like it works really oh, yeah. well. But, you know, the, the thing is, like, kind of what you just brought up is that you can't take it forever because, I mean, one, we don't have any long-term research on this. So we, we actually don't know how it affects the body, you know, over five, ten years. It's a brand new oh, drug. yeah. I've been saying that like crazy. Yeah. And, you know, for people who have prescriptions for it, even if you have a prescription, like, it's still very expensive. Uh, mm-hmm. unless, you, unless you're really wealthy and you want to fork over that kind of money and do shots for the rest of your life, then, you know, eventually you're still going to have to learn how to do it because – the, the research, I don't know if you saw this, but I, I posted something on my Facebook uh, a few weeks back about uh, the, the research behind um, Ozempic and, and semeglutide is actually what it's called. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was research that followed up with participants who had taken it for a little over a year. They saw really great weight loss and then they followed them for another year afterwards after they got off the medication. And much many of those people had returned to their normal weight or close to it because oh, yeah. they were just doing the same thing they were doing before. And it was like, well, now the drug is gone and then you just go back to what you were doing before. Oh, yeah. And and I've even heard from like uh, – I've tried actually pairing up with some clinics that uh, administer Ozempic to mm-hmm. try to help with the lifestyle side. So I'm like, okay, so like if people are going to do it, right? Like fine. People are going to do it. I'm not going to warn you against doing it. I'm just going to say like, hey, like doing it is fine, but – we need to change. Like we can't, we can't expect change to last unless we actually change. And I'll reach out to these clinics and some of them will get back to me and be, and be not interested like in helping people change their lifestyle factors. And the ones that <laughs> are interested, they like quote, have their own people doing it. And then you really look into like some of these people that I know and like, they're not really telling them anything. They're just like, don't eat after seven. You know, like they're basically just telling them to intermit fast, which again, yep. For a lifetime, you're probably going to have to eat after seven, you know, at some point in your life. Or you're going to choose to at some point, or maybe you just yeah. decide you don't like not eating after seven. So yeah, no, yeah and, something, something's going to change eventually. And I just, and it sucks because I know a lot of those people, again, I was talking to a, a, a buddy the other day because I do some in-person training and I was talking mm-hmm. to a trainer at this gym and you know, he was, he was complaining about Ozempic because it was, you know, people aren't wanting to work with him because of it. And not, this isn't supposed to sound mean, but like a year from now, the clientele that have gone back up to their own, their original weight or more is going to be astronomical. Cause it always is like every time a new, whatever comes out, 
there's a, a year later, there's a huge rush of clientele that are all like, well, I did Ozempic and now I'm back above the weight when I started. I'm like, okay, so now are you ready to change? And some are, some aren't. I mean, yep. You know. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's always going to be like that. I mean, really, truly, if you think about it, it's just, it's kind of like every other diet out there in the sense that, you know, people don't really yep. learn anything. They just, it's a black and white type of thing. And the black and white for this is just, let's do a shot once a week and then call it good. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the same. I think we're seeing a little bit of a shift too, because uh, at least in men in the US, the TRT was like a really big thing. And it's, I mean, yep. it still is a big thing and it's only growing. But think about how many, I think there's something like 30 million men in the US on TRT. And like, you would never know because a lot of them thought that it was going to be like kind of a miracle thing. Like you just go in, you get a shot every once in a while, and then, you know, your testosterone levels are up and all of a sudden you're going to be lower body fat and more muscle and all these great things. And they don't really get any of it because they don't change anything. They just yep. go in and do the shot and go about their life. <laughs> so there's not oh, much, yeah. not much change happening. But I mean, anything like that. I mean, the, it's like when you look at professional bodybuilding, like people attribute steroids to a lot, to a large part of their success. And like, don't get me wrong. Like, yes, they are using obviously, but have you ever watched a day in the life of like Jay Cutler or Ronnie Coleman? That shit looks miserable. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> how much they're eating, how much they're training, like nothing just happens. Like you have to grind in order to see like some of the results you want to see. And like, yeah, if you starve yourself, which is like essentially what you're doing with Ozempic because you're just not eating, you're just not hungry. So you're not eating. Right. Yeah. Obviously. Have you ever seen like an obese person in Kenya? Like, no, because they yeah, run or walk everywhere and they don't eat. So it's like, yeah, obviously they're not going to be obese. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and I think like, uh, you know, thinking about that too, like obviously they don't have a lot of food to eat. They don't have mm -hmm. access to food, so they don't have the same problems that we do, but it's still a good example. The fact like if you just straight up don't eat, then yes, it's going to, it's going to make changes. But once you start eating again, then that's where the problems come back again. Well, I think it's funny because people, people argue with calories in calories out as being like the way to lose weight, even though it's like obviously the first law of thermodynamics, but mm -hmm. then these, these same people will do Ozempic and be like, see, Ozempic works. And I'm like, but that's the same thing. It's a, it's the exact same thing. All it's doing is just making you want to literally take in less calories. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know, I think, I think part of the reason that, that calories in calories out gets so much just flack, you know, other than the fact that there's all these other diets that people are promoting and making money off of it. I think it's also too, that so many people are confused with the model. And I think some researchers are even confused with the model too. Like you see some of the research they put out and it supports the idea that hormones influence, you know, this whole cascade of events and that that's what's going to make you lose weight or not lose weight. But in reality, all that's doing is just affecting the calories out portion, or it might be potentially affecting how you absorb calories, you know, mm -hmm. versus being in a calorie deficit versus surplus, something like that. And I think that's also confusing for a lot of people too. They just don't quite understand it. And it's like, well, the hormones are the issue. Well, they are, but it's not the hormones itself aren't directly causing the issue. It's indirectly causing the issue because you're not burning as many calories because your thyroid sucks or yep. you're not burning as many calories because your estrogen levels are out of whack. Like there's a whole number of things. And I think that gets so confusing for people. And most, if you don't have a background in it, you're not going to understand it. So it's either like, oh, I believe in it or I don't. And there's really like no in between. Well, and yeah, and that's where like, 
uh, sorry, a few weeks ago, I went to one of Lane Norton's seminars here in Dallas and he, uh, he said the exact same thing. He was like, it, everything affects either in or out. And then I think the a really hard part, and you can tell me if you've had issues with this too with clients is the wearables, like the, the fitness wearables, those things <laughs> are so inaccurate and it, and it kills me because I, I've had clients be like, I'm burning 5,000 calories a day and how, and you want me to eat this much? And I'm like, you're not burning 5,000 calories a day. You went to CrossFit right. once. They're like, I right. know it felt hard. I know it did, but I guarantee you, you're not burning 5,000 calories a day. Yeah. When I, when I played football in college, I'm, I maybe have actually been burning 5,000 a day, but we were doing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I can <laughs> I mean, see you're that. lifting for an hour a day. Yeah. And you're lifting for an hour a day. You're walking to and from classes all day. Then you go to practice and you're practicing for two and a half hours, like on your feet, like, you know, you're, mm-hmm. it's, that's a little bit more re- reasonable, but yeah, I mean, most fitness trackers, I, you know, I know some of them are getting more accurate over time, but sure. they're still not accurate. I mean, they, they're anywhere is up to 90% inaccurate, depending on mm-hmm. which one you get and what you're using. And I, I track mine all the time. I use it more of just kind of as a guide than anything, Yeah. but looking at the calorie burn that it gives me, I know it's wrong because I track all of my calories, my body weight, and I know where I'm at. Yeah. And I know what my average calorie burn is per day. So when I see it, I'm like, oh, burned three, five, four thousand calories today. I'm like, eh, I might have, but I probably burned more this day and I might have burned less the next day. Like it just depends. Um, but yeah, they are so wildly inaccurate, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and I think if you use it as a baseline, it's fine. You know what I mean? Like if it always says twenty five hundred calories and then, you know, one day it says three thousand, you can reasonably assume maybe you did a little bit more walking or or, or the workout was a little bit more intense that day. But that doesn't necessarily mean you burn three thousand calories. I mean, if you if you work right. out for thirty minutes and it said you burned five hundred additional calories, that workout must have been pretty fucking intense for you to burn yeah, five hundred additional really calories. Tough. Yeah, that'd be really, really that'd be a really hard one. Uh, so shifting yeah. gears a little bit here, what's your what's your number one pet peeve in the fitness industry? If you could pick one thing, mm. I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but if you could pick one thing that you wish would just go away. Oh, probably all of these influencers like showing exercises that do not work at <laughs> all. I don't know how many influence. I mean, they're doing it for good reason, right? It's good sure. marketing and they're mm-hmm. getting, you know, sometimes in the case of millions of followers doing it, but man, I don't know why that it just irks me every time I see people doing exercises and not only do they not understand what muscles are actually being targeted while they're doing it. A lot of them are just ineffective. Like they're they're ones that even if you were doing them as a part of a workout, really wouldn't get you very good results compared to, you know, other exercises outside of that. And I can, I'm not going to call anyone out, but I can think of at least three or four different influencers that pop up on my feed all the time with you know five best exercises for inner chest. And you're like, well, first of all, like you're not. (laughs) But there's just it's just a ton of different exercises, and you watch them do it and. Like I saw one yesterday and it was a, a, it was showing the five best exercises for lower chest. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's see what this guy has. And everything that he chose to do, the first three exercises out of the five were all movements that targeted the upper chest. And so nice. I was very confused. But you know, people look at it and they see it and they're like, oh, that's cool. I never thought about doing this movement this way. And you're like, nah, it's just a terrible way of doing it. It's like, it's like the nutrition, right? It's, there's, there's basics that always work. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with the exercise side of things. The basics always work, but there's always people out there saying, oh, here's this secret or here's this hack to doing this exercise and you'll get more benefit out of it. In reality, you don't. It's probably actually worse for you. 
No, yeah, and, and to piggyback off that a little bit, because I've seen this with with in person clients a lot. Because I'm, you know, I'm working with them one on one. I'm seeing the way they do things, and they're asking me questions like in the moment. Uh, it almost adds a level of confusion to to the workouts themselves because instead mm-hmm. of doing the basics, you know, back squat, deadlift, bench press, shoulder press, tricep extensions, like movements that we know work. And if you do right. them in the correct volume and the correct intensity, you will see results from it. And they'll be like, well, how should I pronate or how, how, what degree should my hand be at? Or what degree should my toes be at? And I'm like, you know, we're working on just getting off the couch. You're like, why, why yeah. are we worried about <laughs> degrees of, of hand turning? And so like, we haven't rowed since high school. So why don't we right. just row? And, but, but right. they think there's this level of complexity to it because these influencers with millions of followers are, are telling them like, well, if you don't turn your hands at a 45 degree angle, you're not going to hit the rhomboids exactly as they need to in order for growth. And you're like, you're going to grow just from lifting some weights. Yeah. You know? <laughs> we make this real simple. Yeah. If you've been sedentary for 15 years, I promise like whatever you do, you're probably going to grow it from. And like, yeah, part, part of it's like, okay, Susie, like if you're only lifting two and a half pounds on a lateral raise, like let's not worry about foot placement and yeah. <laughs> Like it doesn't matter, but you know, it, we actually, I, I used to work with a trainer, uh, when I very first started out after I got my, um, my, I, I passed the registered dietitian exam and, uh, she, she made a killing off of doing workouts that were just wild exercises that quite literally nobody would ever do. But mm-hmm. she, oh man, when I say made a killing, she was the number one trainer at a, a at one of the most profitable locations in the U S in Houston at the time. And I mean, she made more than every single trainer in there, like by far. And it was Mm -hmm. because these people thought that these workouts were just so awesome. And like, you know, they kicked their butt and really like they weren't getting anything out of it. Like they felt like they were. And so they would go tell their friends and their friends would come in and train with her. And I mean, she ended up making a killing off of that. But like none of the exercises she did actually worked. They just, they were one of those things they felt like they were working. So by the time they're done, they're like, you know, I got a burn in every muscle group and I'm really yep. sweaty and man, that was a great workout. And it's like, ugh. it felt like it was, but I promise you it wasn't. Yeah. I, I think one of my biggest pet peeves from, from the exercise side, not necessarily the nutrition is when people said, yeah, that was a really good workout. It made me sore. And I was like, mm-hmm. and then, and then yeah, like, again, then you go to that, that continuum of like, well, like soreness isn't necessarily a good indicator of a good workout, but at the same time, like sometimes you will get sore from a good workout. So that's a, like, it gets so hard to help people understand when like, I, I would never say soreness is like a good indicator. It's just, no, you know, you're like, sometimes a good workout will make you sore, but a bad workout can also make you sore. Yeah, yeah. That's true too. One of the, one of the hardest things to break when it comes to clients in terms of soreness is like, they love to have their abs feel sore. <laughs> and it's like such a great feeling like, Oh man, it was mm-hmm. such a good workout. My abs are sore for the next two or three days. And it's like, well, that's just because you did a million reps. Like it really had nothing to do with anything else. <laughs> yeah. It didn't mean that you got better results per se, but you know, it just feels great. Cause it's like the one area that people want to improve and it feels like it's improving because it's so sore. Oh, here's a good, here's a good question off that. So how do you feel about when people ask for spot reduction? Because that's, that's a really popular thing, but like spot reduction in itself, I don't think is necessarily true. But at the same time, it's never a bad thing to build muscle in those desired areas where you do feel like you have some body fat to lose. Yeah. I mean, like true spot reduction isn't going to happen. Like, is there going to be some? Yes. Because if you build a muscle in a specific area, 
then now the the proportion of muscle to fat is going to be skewed. You have more muscle and you kept the same amount of fat. Well, it's still going to look better because mm-hmm. there's a less percentage of fat in that area now. You've built muscle. And the other thing too is like you also have subcutaneous fat, right? Like you got fat beneath your skin and you also have intramuscular fat. So you think about like really good swimmers like Michael Phelps, they have really high levels of intramuscular fat. And, you know, when you exercise a specific area, you are training a muscle to then store more fat within the muscle. So now you can make an argument that, yes, you could, you could do some level of spot training in that area. But what people don't realize is that when you exercise a specific muscle group, that muscle's not pulling the fat from the, the skin right around that muscle. It's not just immediately pulling it from that area to then be used. All those fat cells across your entire body are emptying out into your blood and that blood gets circulated to the next cell that needs it the most and then it goes there to be burned off for fuel. So like it, I get that question a lot. I still get that question a lot actually on my Instagram. Yeah. Um, every, I think probably once every month or two, I get someone asking about spot reduction, but yep. it, that's why it really just comes down to just dropping the body fat percentage. Um, you unfortunately can't target a specific area. Yeah. And that's generally what I tell people as well. It just, I, I think you explained it very elegantly. And the, uh, and so I, I think another big one too, is the fat burning zone. I hear that one a lot. So you know, the, uh, the, the oxygen exchange ratio of, of carbohydrates to fat, as far as the, like the amount that you're using when you're doing cardiovascular exercise. And I feel like people hear fat burning zone and they're like, well, I got to get to the fat burning zone in order to lose this body fat. Right. Even though high intensity training has been shown to burn more calories in a shorter amount of time. So that's probably more advantageous for burning body fat overall. Can you explain just for the listeners, like, you know, what, what that means, like the fat burning zone and, and why, why it doesn't burn as many calories necessarily? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, that's actually something that I get. I used to get a lot more cause I used to do uh, metabolic testing and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So the problem with that is, is really just the naming of it, right? Like it's, it's the idea that you're in a fat burning zone and really, I mean, you technically are, um, but you're burning less calories per minute because it's less intense. I think really the fat burning zone is, is, is really truly best used for what's the max amount of calories that you could burn without just absolutely killing your muscles and your nervous system and everything else to the point where you have to recover for two or three days. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, what's the most I could burn and then be able to do it again tomorrow and the next day. That's really the best method or use really of the fat burning zone. But when you think about the really high intensities, you're burning more calories per minute. It's just that it's coming from carbs and it it throws people off because you just, again, you think of like fat as just being this dormant tissue that if you don't burn it, then it's not going to go anywhere. But the thing is, is when you're burning off that carbohydrate, that carbohydrate is then replenished. If you don't eat, if you just like didn't eat anything, it has to be replenished from something and it's being replenished from fat stores. So what's happening is your body is breaking down that fat, taking it into the liver, and the liver is then converting that fat into carbohydrate to then be stored inside the muscle for the next workout. So a lot of people don't realize that. It's like, well, you could actually work out for less time and burn potentially 50% more calories, depending on what you're doing, in that less time. And it's still going to come from fat because it comes back to that idea of calories in versus calories out. Like We can't break that. Um, just because you burned it from fat versus carb, it, it still won't matter because it's in calories in versus calories out. So what you're saying is, is that calories in calories out works. That's the only thing that works. <laughs> that's that's, that's that the only that's, thing. 
no matter what you explain or how many times we say it, it always comes back around to the fact that if you eat more than you burn, you're going to have to store it. Yep. Energy, energy can only do two things. It can be stored or it can be given off as heat. And yep, that's, it. that's it. That's all it can do. <laughs> that is well, it. Josh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. Uh, you know, what, what's the best place Absolutely. for people to find you? If they want to connect with you. Uh, find me on Instagram. Probably be the easiest would be Jay, at J Nutrition. Uh, I'm also on TikTok, same uh, username. Um, that's pretty much what I'm mostly on. Facebook, uh, just under my, my actual name, Josh New. Uh, and it is new, N-E-W, like a new person. And yeah. it is J Nutrition. It's spelled N-E-W-T-R-I-T-I-O-N. So it's a play on my last name. Man, your, your marketing made itself. With, with, <laughs> with the new person, the nutrition, that stuff's awesome. That's right. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much again for listening to the Fitness First Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Mays. You can find me at www.jakescoaching.com and then on Instagram as well, at Jake's Coaching. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.